And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It is Tuesday. And I am in the process of updating the podcast players. For those of you who are listening, I am behind a little bit on that, but I am getting that. I'm getting I'm getting caught up. I live in a state of perpetual catching up on the to-do list. Welcome everyone. Jason Hud here. In the studio, I am here in the super secret underground bunker at World Headquarters. The live chat is open. The email is live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. We are broadcasting live on YouTube and Facebook. This particular show, Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central. And a lot of the times we have guests. And when we don't have guests, you get to hear me rant for an hour. In either case, I try to keep it fairly interesting. I don't know. Mrs. Boss keeps me on my toes. She tells me if I get boring or not. It happens sometimes. (coughs) Yeah. All right. Peanut gallery. Thank you. We're on all the social media and podcast players iHeartRadio, Spotify. That thing started over again. I wasn't supposed to do that. All right. So iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Double Twisted, TuneIn. And uh, there is an RSS feed link over at podcast.com if you are interested in getting that as well. We We did have somebody ask about RSS feeds for our video channel, and I'm looking into that. So uh, that may be something that happens here fairly soon. Let me do that. There it is. Okay. All right. So uh, real quick, any of you who are interested, we do have a discount over at SuperheroStuff.com, 10% off when you use the promo code SciFiForMe10. And uh, that gets you a little bit of a savings that you can have for swag and stuff that you can wear to your next virtual convention. So that seems to be the thing now. All right, joining us uh, from, I believe you're in Omaha, right, Mr. Travis Hearman? No, I am in Aurora, Colorado. Aurora, Colorado. Okay, all right, all right. I th- I made that assumption because it's your your bio says you're teaching at University of Nebraska in Omaha, and I figured you That's were still true. there. So That's true. I'm teaching a science fiction course this semester, actually. Well, welcome to the program, sir. Happy to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. This is exciting. So let's, let's get into uh, a couple of things here just to establish who you are, what you do, because there are a number of people that have come across this channel and, and have joined us on this program that I personally have not heard of. I haven't read, I haven't read the books. I haven't, you know, we contacted people and we said, hey, we've got this new show. You want to talk about your stuff? And we've got a number of people contacting us, and that's great. I think it's it's wonderful when we have those opportunities to introduce new people, you know, new create you know, creators that we haven't heard of before. You know, depending on whatever circles you're in. So tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, just from the standpoint of how you got into writing from the start. With you've got a bachelor's in engineering, you're teaching. Um, you were at the Odyssey Writing Workshop. That one I have not heard of. I've heard of Clarion West. And a couple of others, uh, but Odyssey Workshop I haven't heard of. What what can you tell me about that? Uh, Odyssey is uh, it's very similar to, to Clarion. It's um it's a six week six week residency program uh, in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, and uh, it is run. It's sixteen students, uh, and it is run by a one of the best teachers I've ever had, Jean Cavellos. She used to be a Used to be an used to be an editor for Del Rey, uh, but now she teaches uh, 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 at Odyssey and also at uh, uh, at the College of Manchester where Odyssey's held. 
And uh, it's a, I'm going to put it in a, since you brought it up, I'm going to put in a plug for it. It is um, life changing. Um, uh, Odyssey changed my life it, just like it has a lot of writers who go there. Um, and so if you want to be a professional writer of genre fiction, I would highly recommend checking it out. Um, uh, in addition to Gene's teaching, they have uh, weekly guests and a uh, week-long writer in residence uh, at one point. So uh, I highly recommend that. As, as for how I as for how I got into writing, it's because I read books. <laughs> you know um, what? What's honestly my start was I read. Uh, a couple of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter novels uh, that were in a sort of a hardcore or a hardcover um, dual volume uh, that I found in my grade school library. Um, and they just kind of set me on fire. And I sat down with my mom's Smith Corona typewriter and I pounded out 200 words at 200 pages of single-spaced john carter pastiche and <laughs> that was the beginning <laughs> you know yeah. uh, and as far as like the professional side um uh, i started freelancing in about uh, 1999 or 2000 doing a ton of rpg stuff uh, uh back when uh, uh dungeons and dragons edition three or uh third edition came out the open source uh stuff all right I did a ton of work uh freelance work there um, and, uh, I still do, I still dabble in gaming freelancing, uh, and, but my first, uh, real novel came out, uh, was Heart of the Ronin, uh, in 2009, uh, and I've been doing it professionally ever since. Now, the, the gaming side of things, I know that there are, there are some people who are in that world, the tie-in fiction we talk about, uh, especially with, uh, the RPG stuff, uh, do you play the game and figure out your scenario or are you, are you just taking the, the raw material and say, okay, well these, these character types can do X. So what situation can I throw them into? How much, how much research versus actual gameplay goes into a well-crafted tie-in book for an RPG? I think tons. Um, the, the stuff that I was writing, I did, uh, I did a number of like short adventures, uh, that, um, that were published. Um, and all of those involved a fair amount of, of research, but also, I mean, you, you have to play the game. You have to know the game. Um, uh, as far as fiction goes, uh, you, well, you, the, the, the tie in fiction that I've written, uh, is for Battletech. Um, that's uh, a you know, and they've been around since the '80s. So you know, BattleTech has 35 years of of tie-in fiction that is all canon, and you, <laughs> the, uh, there's a whole wiki um, that basically includes all of the minutia of different mechs and their models and their weaponry and all the stuff that you know, 300 years of future history, and uh, it's 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 pretty mind-boggling. Uh, um, but in, in, there I just sort of found the stories come from, mm, uh, sort of like a request by, uh, the game company saying, okay, we've got this stuff going on in our world right now. We want you to write some fiction that ties into these events. Okay. So that's, and that's, so that's where you start. Right. Um, and, uh, the rest of the stuff, I mean, uh, the Firefly role-playing game, that was some fun research. I mean, I worked on a book called The Smuggler's Guide to the Rim. Uh, so I got to flesh out uh, one of the worlds from one of the episodes and come up with my own bunch of story hooks um, that on that planet, uh, which was a ton of fun. Oh, God, that was, that was all so awesome. That so I feel really fortunate to have done that. Tie-in fiction, of course, is uh, professional fan fiction on one level, but on the other side of that, it has to be fairly gratifying to be able to contribute to that universe. But on oh, the absolutely, that's why you do it. Yeah, but on the flip side of that, how how frustrating is it, or is it frustrating, 
to be in a world that you didn't create and now you have to work within a certain set of parameters? Do you do you have you run into times where you get this idea, oh, wouldn't it be cool if and then the license holder sits there and goes, Nope, can't do it, shut you down, think of something else. Yes, that happens. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and particularly with Battletech, because there's so much stuff that's already out there that that can't really be contradicted. Uh, and if you want to, you have to have a really good reason for it. Right. Um, uh, so there, you know, there, you know, all of the, I've I've had um, three Battletech stories published at this point, and um, uh, all of them have involved a meticulous sort of editing process where. There's the story editor, um, but then it's also run through a series of each story is run through a series of fact checkers, who make sure that uh, the events I'm describing and the and the and the mechs I'm using in the story uh, fit within the BattleTech canon, um, and that can be a little bit frustrating, but um, but not so bad because uh, they they're always really good about. Uh, um, making alternate suggestions, right? Um, well, you can't do this, but how about this? Does that work? And sure. I'm like, and what I'm more interested in is less the nuts and bolts of, of the tech. Uh, I'm interested in telling a compelling story. Um, so if I can make the story that I want to tell fit within the parameters that they give me, uh, I'm happy. Now, is that more creatively satisfying to overcome those obstacles when you sit there and go, okay, well, how do I, how do I work my way around this? Or is, is that just another, another creative endeavor where we go from start to finish and you're happy with the result regardless of how much trouble it took to get there? Oh, boy. I mean, it, it is creatively satisfying uh, to sort of to, to figure it out. Um and, you know, in every case, the story has been made better uh, by the suggestions that they're giving me, right? Because um, a lot of times as, as we're, if we start kicking ideas back and forth, that sparks um, more ideas of, of cool stuff to put in the story, which is always fun. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a real give and take uh, and I've never had a really bad uh, experience there uh, working like that. Now, at what point in all of this, doing the, the fan fiction and the John Carter pastiche and all of that, at what point did you sit there and say, okay, I'm going to make a go of it professionally and write my own original, not Battletech, not John Carter, not Star Wars, not Star Trek, I'm going to come up with my own universe. Did were, was that after you went through Odyssey, or did you have that oh, ink like no. before that? No, no. I the, basically being a fiction writer is all I've ever really wanted to do. Um, I was doing that in high school. The John Carter thing was just the was just the kickoff. Um, but I mean, immediately after that was done, I was writing my own stuff, um, and uh, <clears throat> uh, so yeah, that stuff that was all part of the learning process, right? Right. Um, so yeah, from you know from forty years ago, thirty years ago, I was uh, writing my own stuff. So. so you've you've been around long enough to have experienced some of the fanzines, I guess. Uh, some, yeah. Um, <laughs> that was I was I was aware of them. Uh, I was aware that they existed. Uh, but, um, back when I was in high school, I lived in the middle of nowhere and the, and the internet did not exist. Right. Um, so I didn't even know what a science fiction convention was until I got to college. Um, uh, so, uh, I, I didn't really have much exposure to any of that, uh, until the internet came along really. Yeah. So maybe the mid mid to late nineties. Now, what your first uh, your first few conventions were you there just attending as a fan or I was, was a fan, okay? Yeah. How how soon did you make that transition over to start going as an author? The first time, okay, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna back up uh, just a second. Now I said my first book was Heart of the Ronin. Um, 
but there was one previously that um, because of a really awful publishing slash agent situation, um, I've never really felt, uh, I don't know, I call it my bastard stepchild novel. <laughs> um, but uh, at that time, um, uh, I did go to a few conventions, uh, local ones, uh, to sort of uh, Omaha and uh, uh, South Dakota um, and Lincoln, Lincoln, Nebraska, um, to promote this book that had just come out. Um, and this was in 1996. Um, so uh, those were my very first efforts at going to conventions uh, as an author. Um, and, and, and for the most part, they were very positive. I still remember the first lady who ever bought a book from me at my little author table at a gaming convention. Uh, and we're still connected on social media. Um, so that's, that's, that's fun. Um, uh, so that was the beginning. Um, the first really, but I wouldn't consider those pro cons. Yeah. They were the kind of con where, where you have 200 people sitting around playing 40 K all weekend, you know, um, that sort of, you know, and D and D, um, uh, and, and that's fun, but, but it's not, it, it's definitely, uh, not what you'd call a pro con like the world science fiction convention or right. dragon con or anything like that that started in about oh about 2010 uh that was when i started going to my first professional cons and getting on panels uh, my very first sort of professional panel i believe was uh i believe it was world fantasy in 2010 uh, so that was kind of the beginning. Um, now you mentioned World Science Fiction Fest uh, convention. You mentioned World Fantasy Fest. You've also dabbled in horror, and I see that oh, yeah. you're a contributor on the the Horror Writers of America Poetry Showcase. Yep. I, I do. You don't. You don't run across a whole lot of people nowadays who write poetry, especially professionally. But you know, every now and again, you might run across something somebody posts on social media, but do you find poetry or is that something that you do a lot or you just did this on a lark? You got invited, Hey, let's put this thing together. How often do you get into verse? There are times when I have written poetry. Uh, I haven't so much lately because I've been focused so much on, on novels. Um, but I do think poetry is the purest form of language. It's because it's, absolutely distilled um, right um there's uh, it, it is kind of a like a single sparkling jewel um like perfect in and of itself there's no uh there's no sort of fluff around it right that's right. what poetry is um well, it, it, depending on what kind of structure you use the economy of scale comes into effect where you have to be very precise and very careful on your word choice and how you phrase things and all of that. So I would imagine it's at the very least a good exercise in use of language, word choice, uh, idea structure, and, and that sort of thing. Do you, now having having taught now that you're teaching, you know, at Odyssey Workshop and you're teaching science fiction literature at University of Nebraska. Do you incorporate poetry exercises in as part of that, or is this just something that you do just yourself? Um, uh, the science fiction class I'm teaching is mainly focused on on literature, so it's not so it's not really a writing class. Gotcha. Um, because of the way UNO is set up, that's done elsewhere. Uh, but uh, the uh, uh, my science fiction class is about reading and getting an overview of like sort of the history of science fiction and the themes that are contained in it, that sort of thing. Um, as far as, uh, uh, you know, the poetry goes, um, sometimes uh, poetry is one of those things where sometimes I, I have sat down to write it knowing I wanted to say, write a sonnet about something. Um, and I would just like sit down at a convention and start playing in my notebook a little bit. Um, and other times they sort of come to me like as I'm just walking around, 
uh, like a bit of inspiration, I guess. Um, you know, um, like one time I was sitting at a, I was sitting at a slam poetry reading, um, and something one of the other poets said sparked an idea in me, and within a couple of minutes, I had an entire poet poem in my head that I then had to sit down and write. Um, so that kind of thing happens. Um, it it doesn't it hasn't happened lately. I think um, it uh, it is anything that a writer can do to improve the improve their use of language to make it crisper, uh, sharper, more vivid um, is a good thing. And and poetry is frankly perfect for that. Mm. I recommend even people who want to write novels. Uh, I recommend that they write short fiction as well for the same reason. Excuse me. The brevity forces a certain amount of creativity. Sure. Well, and and the the challenge for that, I would think, um, because I have dabbled a little bit in in fiction writing and done some, you know, I've got a self published novella and I've done some some things like that, but there doesn't seem to be a big market where at least for a while the market for short fiction seemed to be fairly limited i mean you had asimovs you've got you've got a few magazines that are still out there publishing short fiction and you could you know a lot of self-published stuff on the web it, it, but it does seem like short fiction is kind of making a comeback is that does that seem to be the case for you have you noticed any kind of a shift because we're seeing more anthologies. I'm seeing a lot of stuff on Kickstarter and, and Indiegogo where they're putting collections together. It are, is short fiction getting new life somehow? Um, yes. Uh, it's, it's the, the landscape has changed. Um, you've still got the, uh, the big print, the, the famous, you know, the storied iconic print magazines like Asimov's and analog and fantasy and science fiction. Um, I mean, they're still out there and they're still printing, um, but there, but the a lot of new short fiction, really great stuff, is coming out uh, only in web or or even by podcast. Um, the Escape Pod, Pseudopod, Podcastle, those are all really great uh, places to discover new short fiction. Um, uh, Clark's World. Um, Oh, geez, there are so many. Um, Lightspeed. Um, there's a lot of really great magazines that are online only. Now, they do sometimes publish sort of their best ofs as print. Uh, but, you know, short fiction isn't what it was in, say, the science fiction golden age. Right. You know, the, the 40s and 50s when you could write, when you could make a living writing short science fiction short stories um uh those days don't exist anymore um but I, there's de I, I do think it's coming back a little bit um maybe as our attention spans continue to shrink uh <laughs> you know uh short fiction will continue to come back in popularity i don't know do you think with with the internet, the proliferation of all of that, and the fact that so many conventions are going online now because of the pandemic, because of the lockdown, we've got all these virtual events. Do you see an opportunity there for authors to maybe pivot a little bit and and do more readings online, do more panels online? Because now you have the opportunity to participate in events that maybe you might not have the opportunity to travel and and go to these things. You know, I could go to Comic Con India. I can go to you know something going on in Ireland or or Germany or Australia. And and I'm not having to worry about all of the travel, all of the expense. I just log on at the right time and I'm there. So is there more opportunity maybe for authors to get their their name out there now? I think that's certainly true. Uh, and, and I've already, and I've already noticed that, um, I haven't taken advantage of it yet. Um, uh, because God, I miss cons. <laughs> you know, this year has sucked so bad. Yeah. You know, because 
going to conventions is where I hang out with all my author friends um, that I've met at conventions. And it's the only place we ever really see each other. Yeah. Um, and, and I always find that really invigorating, uh, energizing, um, both personally and prof- and professionally. Um, now, that being said, the, the virtual cons, uh, they're, they're not as satisfying in that regard, but they're still fun, <laughs> right? Um, right? But um, I did see what you're describing happening uh, at the last virtual con I went to, which was Mile High Con uh, last month. And uh, they were a- they were all virtual, and they were able to get a number of people, uh, guests, uh, to sort you know to zoom in uh, that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to, which is fun, uh, especially if you're on a panel with someone you were not expecting to see at the con, um, like an editor from Tor, for instance, sure. or you know a, a prominent science fiction author who you didn't know was actually coming as a guest and all of a sudden you're on a panel uh that that's really great um and i think maybe that will continue how they'll continue to work to sort of maybe find a balance there once the pandemic subsides and we're back to in-person events um i would like to see that continue somehow i'm not sure how I don't know you you know have have a couple of people come in on a big screen behind the live panel. I don't know. Um, yeah. That could that could be really fun. Well, uh, and it's something that's come up in conversation a number of times on this show. We were talking about guests where where you know as we're looking at events moving forward and as they they get to the point where we're now able to go back to some semblance of normal with physical events actually in person at, at locations, it almost seems like those events are going to have to have some kind of virtual online track nowadays because even if everything gets back to normal, the, there are going to be people who are not going to want to take the risk of being in crowds yet. So I, it almost, it almost seems like a no-brainer, but you'd, th- you'd think that this is something that has to be discussed at the organizational level, at the top, you know, the administrative level of these people that are putting together the, the, the cons, saying, okay, what do we do online? How do we make it of value? Uh, even to those people who are who are not coming to the con, or if if it's something even for the people who are at the con, they get this other experience as well because it's got to be unique enough to to hold people's attention and not pull away from the physical event. So there's a lot of a lot of different plates to spin on that, I'm sure. It's it's going to be an interesting puzzle to figure out, I think. Yeah. And and, and you know, and, you know, uh, you got and you got to love the fans because I mean, or the the people the fans who organize conventions because it's such an enormous undertaking anyway. And now this year they were forced to either cancel their convention or figure out some way to work around, you know, uh, social distancing. Um, uh, How they, so now what we've done is if we continue to include the virtual side, you've added a whole nother realm of work to do. Uh, that is on top of everything that's involved with a physical event. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like it would be almost, I think, I suspect it would be, almost be like running two cons at the same time. It's kind of like a Venn diagram you know, <laughs> where a certain amount of, of those things overlap. But uh, I kind of half expect that there will continue to be their own realms. And but- that might also be interesting for people who for bringing people into the fold who wouldn't think of coming to a convention anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, whether they're stuck at home for whatever reason, or it's just never occurred to them to drive to a convention center and hang out with 
you know, 1500 other nerds and geek out all weekend. Um, well, and I've had, I had the experience where we've been at a couple of conventions where we, we just walk the floor as we broadcast live. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes as simple as just taking your, taking your phone, you're streaming to YouTube and you just walk around and say, here's what it is. And people have said it's almost like being there. You know, you're you're there by proxy. You're seeing all of the different booths and and seeing what's going on and the cosplay and the and the people. Uh, but it's it's not exactly the same. It's it's one of those things where, like you say, you're going to almost be doing two conventions at once, and there needs to be a dedicated team who knows what they're doing and that's a that's a crucial component of this yeah. because as we've seen from some of these online conventions some of them go better than others um <laughs> so and the surprising it was a bit, it was it was surprising to me to see San Diego's attempt fall as flat as it did i mean comic-con on comic-con at home whatever San Diego ended up doing doesn't seem like it was very much of a success, which is a surprise on on one hand, but also I guess I shouldn't be surprised because you don't have the Hollywood component online like you do in the actual event in San Diego. So I'm wondering how much that factors in on some of these. So I don't know, it'll be interesting. Uh, Sci-Fi Snob in the chat says you can't engage in heavy drinking over Zoom. So that's another thing to to uh, to factor in. That's <laughs> so true. Have to be very careful. You know, you know, one of the things about conventions for uh, authors and other professionals is the barcon side of things. Yeah, things you know where you get together with your friends uh, at the bar and you drink and then you make new ones and you meet people and the 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 physical the the networking side of it is is possible with a virtual convention but not quite the same it's just not uh it is not as effective from the networking side well that's that's what you when you're supposed to at the end of the at the end of the virtual convention you set up your laptop in the bar and then everybody everybody can dial in and your and you know your camera at least you can see the bar Maybe. I don't know. It's, uh, all right, so let's... Uh, you mentioned Tokyo Blood Magic. Let's talk about that for a minute because I want to make sure that we get some conversation in here about that because that is your new book that's coming out. So where where did this one begin? What was the what was the genesis of this book? Uh, well, it, 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 the genesis of it was a conversation at a writer's conference, a uh, Superstars writing seminar. Um, I am was having breakfast with James Hunter, uh, who's a really successful uh, indie author. Um, he writes a lot of uh, urban fantasy and lit RPG uh, stuff. Uh, and uh, so we got to talking about... Um, uh, uh, it was an evolution, right? We, we were going to work together on a book, but then, he, but then I was like, oh, he was too busy. He's like... Uh, so what's, what sort of started out as an idea we were going to do together at the, at the barest minimum, like let's do a, a martial arts wuja, uh, you know, urban fantasy cultivation story together. I'm like, okay, cool. He's like, and then he's like, ah, I don't have time. You just, you just go write it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so that was where that started. Uh, and, uh. Uh, so, you know, and from there, you know, I, I've written a lot of sort of J uh, Japan-based, Asian-based uh, historical fantasy and, and uh, steampunk uh, fiction. Uh, so it was kind of a no-brainer for me to step into an urban, uh, you know, a modern urban fantasy setting with the same kind of ideas, the same kind of... Um, you know, my love of martial arts and, uh, you know, the weird menagerie of, of, uh, folklore critters that Japanese, uh, mythology has. Right. Uh, and Korean and Chinese. Um, so I just love playing in that kind of sandbox. Well, now, now correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, I, it does not look like you're Asian. 
So nope. I, I imagine I imagine you've got to do a lot of research for this, but also on on that have have you run into any pushback from because nowadays you know the, cat, the cancel culture is a is a thing and now the you know the complaints of cultural appropriation are are all over social media have you run into any pushback about being a white guy writing asian characters i have not um and uh uh i We've, I've had a lot of conversations about this with other, you know, straight white dude writers um, who are writing stuff that, um, you know, with main characters that don't look like them. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my personal feeling is you have to respect the material. Uh, you have to... I, I, when I was, when I started writing my Ronin series, I got into it so much that I actually moved to Japan and lived there for three years. Um, and that was a whole life changing experience in about 50 different ways. Um, and I have continued that. Um, uh, you know, I speak Japanese. I, I, I was immersed in that culture, um, for several years. Um, so I feel I have the background to write about it intelligently, um, with, with a, with an understanding of, uh, the sort of, uh, a lot of the cultural underpinnings that, uh, result in various types of behavior. Um, now, obviously I, I do occasionally get things wrong. And I'm happy when people call me out on that. Yeah. Well, at least after I get away from the, ah, damn it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah. uh, uh, moment. But, um, but yeah, um, I don't know. I feel like as writers, our job is to explore. And if we were all stuck writing, if all of us straight white guys were stuck straighting white, writing straight white guys, uh, we wouldn't learn anything. Um, uh, you know, I hope, I hope that, um, uh, you know, the people who, who write, I, I think it's a, this, this is a, such a complicated question. I think <laughs> you have to, to, to do this without getting that cultural appropriation tag stuck on you um or accusations leveled at you you have to approach the material with the respect it deserves and that includes as much research as necessary to write about these people as humans not uh, you know because you know ethnic groups are not monolithic you know um Black people are not the same. Japanese people are not the same. Everybody, you know, you know, everybody is a human with a different skin, um, and we all have certain things that you that make us human. So, I just, you know, I try to treat it that way. Um, yeah. So. Well, and it 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 strikes me that. Since the beginning of storytelling, uh, if you were to put that kind of a restriction on, we wouldn't have a number of the kinds of stories that we've had. I mean, it it just seems like it's kind of a silly thing. Well, and and we see it in in Hollywood in the entertainment business now. You know, where they say you know you can't you can't have a straight person play a homosexual character. You've got to have a transgender person play a transgender character. There's there's all of these boxes now that everybody seems to want to put everybody in. And to me, that kind of seems almost regressive, not progressive, in terms of everybody everybody understanding each other and everybody getting along, and we all kind of uh, meet each other where they're at. And to have this, you're not allowed to 
fill in the blank because you're fill in the other blank. It seems kind of silly to me. So, uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you there, uh, with the, you know, with the caveat that, you know, uh, there are, there are definitely areas where, uh, cultural appropriation is harmful. Sure. Um, there are quite a lot of them. Um, now, um, the thing with Hollywood is, especially some of the, um, is that it's, it's really risk averse because there's so, there's so much money involved with any given film, millions of dollars for even a, um, a, a relatively small movie. Right. Um, that the people controlling those purse strings want to be assured that they're going to make their money back. Um, and so they make assumptions about, um, you know, what they think people want to watch. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. They're often wrong. Um, you know, I, we should have had, <laughs> we should have had black superheroes years ago. You know, um, the, 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 you know, the, the missteps in, in Marvel's case alone are sort of mind boggling. Um, mm. uh, so, you know, there's this, like like casting white actors in Asian roles, which is just like what? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so I take so, it you're not looking forward to the uh, to the to the the live action remake of Akira. <laughs> I did, okay. Oh, I had not heard that there was one. Oh, this thing has been beating around for a number of years now, and it was going to be set in Manhattan instead of Tokyo, and they were going to have Gary Oldman in it. And it, it, it was just going to be a big mess. I, I, I don't know that it's ever going to get off the ground. But you've got experience as a screenwriter. You can speak to that a little bit because you've, prob you've been in that world. Have you had discussions I about adapting any of your stuff for screen? Uh, I am at the edge of that world. I haven't had anything produced. I do know a small handful of people like in the industry working um, uh, who have been involved with movies. Um, so I, I, and I'm actively as a screenwriter trying to get my scripts into the hands of people who might make them. Um, so uh, a lot of the scripts that I have uh, are adaptations of, of my fiction. Um, where I think, uh, you know, a short story might be, you know, uh, really cool if it was expanded into a feature length movie. Right. Part of the problem with, um, you know, the disconnect between fiction and uh, film is that um, the ideal length uh, for a, a feature length movie is doesn't come from a novel. It comes from a novella or a short story um, because novels are just too long. Uh, to fit into 120 minutes. Uh, so, so there's that aspect of it. Um, but uh, the, I've, I've written a couple of scripts in collaboration with a friend of mine, Jim Pinto. Uh, uh, and one of those uh, we subsequently adapted into my, into a novel called death wind. Um, so there, it, I, I've gone actually both directions from, you know, from script to prose and then from prose to script. So, uh, uh, so there's that. So, uh, it, and, and it's different. Uh, it, it's very, it's a very different experience going in those different directions. Yeah. So screenwriter, author, teacher, and you've got a number of hobbies here. I see uh, poker player, poet, biker, roustabout. Uh, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you carve out time for family stuff in there as well, but, you know, martial arts, cycling, uh, you're fairly busy. Yeah, my wife forgets my name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, um, but uh, a, lot, a lot of that we do together, like the martial arts we do as a family. Yeah. Um, well, at least pre-COVID we did. Um, so... Uh, and I'm hoping, you know, to get back to that, uh, when the pandemic is over. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've got, a, I, I've got a motorcycle that, um, 
that has a story attached to it and that I won enough money in an online poker game to buy a motorcycle. So I did. <laughs> uh, so, but that was, that was in the days before, uh, you know, when, when sort of poker was kind of at its height about 10 years ago, right. 11 years ago. Um, and, uh, it's much diminished since then. Um, and that was before the, the, the feds cracked down on all the online poker sites. Yeah. Um, there was like, there was like a booming business and then boom, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that was the end of that. So now we got you with a motorcycle. Quincy Allen, I believe has a motorcycle. I think there are, there oh, are yeah. a few, a few different authors. Do you guys ever put together rides and, and everybody kind of go off on the weekend and, and do a thing? Is that a, is that. Yeah, Quincy's a friend of mine. Uh, yeah. We actually talked about that when he was still living in the Denver area. Um, uh, we never got, we never quite got to it. Um, but yeah, he's an avid motorcyclist, and he, and he lives in North Carolina now. So uh, it's a little hard to get to get together that way. Sure, <laughs> but, sure. Uh, uh, I haven't ever managed to do it. Uh, there are there are very few people that I know who are fellow motorcyclists, except. Um, except my, I've got uh, both of my brothers and my sister are now. So, yeah. um, so we have, my brother and I, uh, organized a, uh, we went to, uh, the Sturgis motorcycle rally last year. That was my first time. Uh, and he goes every year with his father-in-law. So, oh, okay. Now, was that a little bit of a, sh- a little bit of a culture shock for you going in there? Or did uh, you, do you know what to expect? Uh, I, you know, I grew up, I mean, I grew up next door to South Dakota, so I always sort of knew about it, knew what it was. Um, and uh, so we went, so I met, went for the first time myself last year. And it was both sort of what I expected and then yet not. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, my brother and I actually, we spent most of the weekend just sort of riding around the Black Hills because it is some amazing scenery. Yeah, uh, it's a gorgeous place to ride a motorcycle. Now I see in your bio both the words biker and cyclist. So you ride both kind of bikes. Are you are you into bicycles as well as motorcycles? Uh, bicycling is is sort of my go to for exercise. No, um, you know if I want to get out of the house, I'll just get on my motor uh, and get some exercise. I'll get on my bicycle and ride around for an hour or two, and then come back and. Do you back to the typewriter. do you find that helps with uh, the writing process? Because I know Kevin Anderson goes hiking, and as he's hiking, he's dictating, and you know th- he takes the two and combines them into you know that clears his head and gives him kind of this free form stream of consciousness type of of writing experience. Does the does do the hobbies help in any way? with your approach, your process in, in writing stories? Sometimes. I mean, uh, uh, you know, writers are not known for being svelte. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because we have to sit in one place for long swaths of time. Um, uh, and Kevin is kind of a prodigy that way. Um, I've tried his method and I've, I haven't, been able to train myself to do it like he does mm-hmm. um uh so you know uh, that you know all all hail to you know <laughs> you know to uh to kevin's prodigious word count um but uh but yeah the, you know getting up out of the chair to go do something else whether and probably typical you know typically physical um helps with you know and it helps the brain kind of work on a piece of story that you haven't quite figured out yet. Um, a lot of times I will have to get up. I'll be sort of stumped about how to proceed with something. Yeah. Um, and occupying your mind and body with something else for a while very often helps you figure out what it was you needed to. Yeah. So you're letting your subconscious chew on it for a little bit while you're off doing something else. Right. Exactly. Now, is that something that uh, came to you naturally, or is that something you had to you had to learn? As far as how to deal with the writer's block and and the challenges of oh, I I just can't crack this. I probably had to learn it. Yeah. Uh, um, 
you know, up until uh, I moved to Colorado in 2012, uh, uh, the writing was very much still in the cracks of time between day job, grad school, you know, whatever else I was doing. Um, but since 2012, I've been writing professionally pretty much full time. Um, so I've had to look for ways to pump up my word count, pump up my product, my, my productivity. Uh, and, and that includes a lot of mindfulness exercises, um, ways of overcoming, uh, writer's block. Um, and I, I, we've actually talked, I've talked about this with a lot of people, even on panels at conventions, you know, the writer's block panels at conventions and, and like, I don't, I don't, writer's block is not something that a professional writer has the luxury of, uh, accepting yeah. because you still, it's your job. You still have to sit down and do it regardless of, you know, you know, engineers don't get in, don't get to have engineers block, even though they, <laughs> they you know, they still have to, you, you still, you still have to let your mind chew on a problem yeah. and come up with a creative solution. Um, so a lot of what I've done over the last you know eight years or so is to figure out ways to boost how much I can produce uh, in a given day. Now, does your engineering background factor into any of this? Is there is there anything that you've learned in that realm that you can apply in your process? All the time. I mean, the the the, the writing process not so much, but the um, Understand the engineering education. I had, uh, you know, uh, six and a half years doing it uh, for my job. Um, that gives you a very broad and solid foundation for how things work. Um, um, my wife puts it like, uh, like she says, "I'm the guy you need on that you need on your zombie apocalypse team." Um, <laughs> Because, because I know a lot about basic mechanics, about how science works, about how electricity works. Uh, I have enough sort of broad base to understand physics, um, like fairly complicated physics. Um, and um, so all of that, and that's why one of the reasons I went into engineering is so that I could write science fiction. Sure. Right. Uh, so that I would understand a lot of uh, scientific stuff um, and then write about it. Do you find that we have you talk about the apocalypse and, and the zombie stuff? Do we have too much of that dystopian fiction around? Is it is it too easy to drop into that? just because of everything that's going on in the real world right now? Oh, man. Is there too much? I don't know. Um, what I do know is that I wrote a science, a dystopian sci-fi novel that in 2016 became not nearly dystopian enough. <laughs> um, and um, I don't know. There's a market for it. I mean, people are, are still reading it. I, I But I think especially, I think, I think the readership for dystopian fiction has decreased over the last three or four years as things have gotten worse. Yeah. Um, uh, so I don't know when things are good, maybe people want to escape into dystopia. I don't know. Um, and when things are really, really awful, they want to, they want bunnies and Busby Berkeley musicals. I don't yeah. know. Um, so, and I, I've heard other uh, authors talk about this, that, um, that a lot of people are wanting more happy, happy ending escape kind of stuff, uh, as opposed to dark and gritty and everybody dies. So the next book that you've got coming out here, this Tokyo Blood Magic, this is not dark and gritty at all. It's it's ha happy magic bunnies. Uh, <laughs> let's say it is gritty um, and dark at times, but there are uh, happy endings to be found. 
um, which if you've read my Ronin series, like, oh, well, that's refreshing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know when I uh, when I started writing the Ronin books, um, I was uh, and I still have this, but I, I had a fascination with samurai films, uh, Akira Kurosawa films. And there's almost never a real romance in those. Um, it's always some sort of um, star-crossed romance where people can't get together or there's two people who just love each other desperately, but you know, there's just too much in the way because life doesn't work that way. There's right. just something about that, I don't know, maybe in, maybe in the Japanese culture itself that's sort of where that springs from. <clears throat> Um, but, uh, but with this series, the, the, the Tokyo blood magic being the first, the first of a trilogy, um, uh, there's going to be a little more, uh, there's going to be the sort of romantic, the unresolved romantic tension, but it does ultimately get resolved. Sure. <laughs> so there are happy endings, uh, 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 to be found. Have you run across because uh, we it, this it's it's come up uh, in conversation this idea here now that authors have to do a lot of the heavy lifting on marketing their books and you've got this new book coming out you've got series of books that have done have you had what kind of challenges have you had in getting the word out that your stuff is even out there and and trying to find new readers? it's a huge hill to climb. Yeah. Um, I've, uh, my, my career is kind of a mix of uh, traditional publishing and indie. Uh, and we could, I could talk for an hour about all the ins and outs of how I got to where I am with sort of each of my books. <clears throat> but the biggest thing that I've had to learn, uh, is not the writing, not how to write well, but how to market how to market myself, how to get over my own internal barriers about tr tooting my own horn. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a big one for a lot of writers who tend to be introverts. Um, so, uh, so learning how to market what works. I, the trouble is, is that by the time I, I feel like by the time I've learned how to do something, the world has moved on um, to the next, uh, to the next internet gold rush. Um, yeah. And the things that I've learned how to do are um, now mostly useless. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it's like it's it's constantly chasing a moving target. Yeah. Well, uh, and I'm looking at your website here. This is a very impressive design uh, with you know all of the the slideshow, especially a lot of the the photography. I'm assuming this is from your time in Japan. Some of it's from my time in Japan. Some of it is Shutterstock. You know, uh, stock. Some of it's stock images. Um, yeah. But a lot of them are uh, like that one there. Uh, that is, that was a picture of a, a lantern festival in Nagasaki. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you've got and, uh, the the Twitter account, of course, because everybody's got Twitter. Uh, and then here's your YouTube channel. And e Eastland, uh, Eastland in the chat uh, mentions YouTube as a marketing uh, channel. Do you have particular preferences in terms of how you promote your work? Uh, my main source of promotion for my work is signing up for my weekly news is my weekly newsletter, uh, which is where I talk directly to fans. Uh, and the sign up is at the bottom of my uh, webpage, where you can just go and subscribe. That's my main marketing focus. I haven't really sort of figured out how to use YouTube yet. Although I know that there are authors that do. Yeah. Um, uh, I have a group on Facebook that I try to cultivate uh, with, with fun stuff, interesting content, and then, you know, throw in my own stuff there occasionally. Um, I have kind of a love hate relation, you know, relationship with social media in general right now. <laughs> Because of I think a, that's you and everybody else, right? Probably. probably. Yeah. Um, like I kind of look at Twitter as sort of my unleashed id, um, <laughs> because I mean, 
there's so much going on in the world that I want to just rail against and, and Twitter is kind of where I tend to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, 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 and Facebook too, to some degree on my sort of personal feed. Um, I don't know. I, I, I found Facebook to be so, uh, I don't know, disturbing, like the stuff that I was seeing that people are, that people actually say and believe I found that to be so disturbing that I had to walk away from it for about a month and a half. Yeah. Uh, at least until the election was over. Um, and now I've kind of gone back, but I'm, yeah, as of yesterday, I'm thinking about walking away again. So I don't know, you know, it, it, it really, it really depends. I, I don't now I, for a long time, I believed, and I know there are a lot of indie authors that treat it this way, uh, that Facebook is kind of a super useful marketing platform. Mm. Um, and it used to be much more so, um, but now any marketing you want to do, you have to pay through the nose. Right. Um, and for a lot of reasons, I'm not willing to. Um, I, I resist the urge to make Mark Zuckerberg any richer. Um, <laughs> well, and and YouTube, YouTube the same way seems to be going a lot more toward the corporate channels as opposed to the smaller independent creators like, like us or a lot of the, a lot of the comics creators who are on there, a lot of the indie media, indie, indie uh, commentary. Uh, and it, it, it feels like the shift in social media is either to the corporate sector or to the radicalization sector and everybody else is just kind of left standing there by the wayside going, okay, where, where do we fit in now? So yeah, I could I could totally understand your frustration with that. We we've talked about that here several times. So. Yeah, the you know I think it's um, the corporations are going to go wherever the money is. And yep. If there are a bunch of indies making money, um, who figured out, who've stumbled upon through you know through either luck or perseverance and hard work, how to make money, how to make a living on something like YouTube or Facebook, or whatever it is, the corporations are going to be there too, um, yeah. as soon as they can. Um, and then they will do whatever they need to in their purely Darwinian, uh, sort uh, mode of existence to edge out everybody else. Yeah. Um, and you know, small operators have never had the wherewithal to stand up against that kind of force. So, um, so then what's going to be the next, uh, thing where, you know, creative independent creatives go to carve out their, you know, little empire. Well, we're starting to see a lot with the crowdfunding with the Indiegogo and Kickstarter, especially over on the comic side of things. And we've seen, you know, Robert Greenberger has, has been on here talking about their, anthology of short stories that they're putting together their second one that they're that they've crowdfunded so that seems like it's going to be at least a a way of doing it not necessarily the way or the only way or the best way but it's certainly going to be an option for a lot of people so hopefully that becomes something that's successful and sustainable that's the that's the other part is you find something that works how long will it work is the is the next question on that so yeah that goes back to what we were talking about with marketing right yeah the things that worked with marketing even three years ago don't really work anymore um particularly with indie publishing um, yeah. uh, i mean um the sort of big thing right now is indie for indie authors i now for traditionally published authors how much of this they do i uh, i don't know um but indie authors are sort of out there buying, fa- setting up Facebook campaigns and Amazon ad campaigns, like all these sort of ads for other stuff. The, the 50 ads for other things that you see on an Amazon page for one book, those are all almost all bought and paid for by those authors. Right. Um, and I don't know the, for, you know, just like everything for a while, it's a gold rush and people make money and then everybody shows up and then there's nothing more for anybody. Um, so, um, how, what that landscape's going to look like three years from now, I don't know. Um, 
So, well, it's a constantly moving target. It is, and hopefully, uh, we hit the target more often than we miss. So, and 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 hopefully, you will hit the target fairly solidly there with the new book. It's called Tokyo Blood Magic. It is out December eighth. <laughs> And uh, that is the first in a series. And, uh, of course, Travis has uh, other books that are available as well. And his website, travishearman.com, where you can find all of that information and sign up for the newsletter. Travis, thanks very much for being here today, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, we will definitely have to do it again. Maybe maybe we'll put together an online Odyssey writing workshop panel. Bring all yeah, the bring some different graduates in and 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 just kill an hour sometime and talk about. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right. Well, thanks very much for being here, sir. And thank you, everyone in the chat and those of you who have been watching today. Don't forget, you can send us feedback with an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me dot com. Or you can leave a comment if you are uh, watching or uh, uh, listening to this in replay. And we will be back to do this again tomorrow. And uh, we will put a link to Travis's uh, website in the show notes. As soon as I get done with the stream, I will put that in. Make sure that that's in there so you can have that and link to it. And uh, let's see. I can put it in the chat here while I'm at it. Travis. Whoop. Two E's. Dot com. All right, there you go. All right, so uh, that's going to do it for us today. Don't forget to subscribe if you have not already, and uh, make sure you've got your notifications turned on, and we will be back with more here on Sci-Fi for Me TV. Thanks very much for being here, everyone. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio, copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 